Sometimes just one dish reveals that how we cook and eat is the stuff upon which civilizations are built. Now that seems like a lot of pressure to put on a plate, but when we shift our approach to something that's fundamental to our lives as food, we are actually opening ourselves up to something more than just the meal on the table. Today, we're picking through a figurative casserole of ideas, all stemming from the 1903 The Settlement Cookbook. Grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. This one is a wild ride. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes. And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience. Share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun. Talk about food history and how food connects and defines us. So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you. Hello, Kim. How are you? Wow, my brain is pretty much on fire today. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Dad's getting ready to head out to my brother's, so he's getting all packed up, and we're getting things washed and cleaned so we can get the fifth wheel away. Yeah, it's kind of a sad time, but we've had so much fun with him. It's just been a lot of fun to have him here with us this summer and hanging out and doing some things. And oh man, I can tell you, he has been the biggest help getting the tiny house ready for winter. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's a kind of a figurative season as well as a literal season shift going on for us. Yeah. I know we always talk about the weather, but we are definitely heading into fall. It's Mm -hmm. obvious we're heading into autumn now. Um, So you kind of get that chill some days and what you want to eat starting to feel a little different and starting to really think more about good rib sticking kind of food. And yet we still get these really pretty sunny days going on. So this is pretty much the perfect. I love this time. It's one of my favorites. I do too. And I'm so excited that you folks have your home coming back together. Mm. That's just got to be a big relief, a big welcome change for you folks. Absolutely. So before I tell you how I won over my husband's heart with my rendering of steak and casserole, I briefly want to revisit the history of the settlement movement in the United States. And to do this, we're going back to the late 19th century. So let me paint you a picture of life. Remember, our country is reconstructing itself after a bitter civil war, and there is the smell of industrialization and reform in the air. The end of the war and the excitement of territorial expansion have people feeling optimistic about their future. Some follow their manifest destiny to settle Texas and the American Southwest. Others find fortune and opportunity in a new industrial age quite literally wrought by the labor of millions of immigrants from overseas and migrants from America's rural areas. I think as we mentioned in our last episode, nearly 12 million immigrants entered the United States between 1870 and 1900. Many ended up settling in or near the ports of entry where they arrived. Some made it into the interior of the country, but a lot of people, right? A lot of of change, huge component of the overall country's population. So what happened was the nature and character of what we think of as a city began to change. And it always takes some time for an environment to absorb a change in its population, Mm -hmm. right? The urban problems of traffic, sanitation, and health issues Mm -hmm. are ameliorated by the expansion of trolley and subways, 
as well as public water and trash services, it just takes time for these things to come into force and to an effect. People of means are able to push out of the cities into something new called suburbs. Right. (laughs) But those without extensive resources end up staying in the cities in rental or tenement houses and relying on networks of support from other immigrants. You can go into almost any international district or Chinatown in the country, San Francisco, Seattle, and there's still elements of these support networks left. It's kind of fascinating once you know what and where to look for them. These communities are sometimes defined by ethnicity or country of origin, and they become enclaves of comfort and familiarity. These places can become so potent when everything else around you feels foreign, alien, and Mm. strange. The more things change, the more that you seem to want to hold on to something that gives you strength and reminds you of your identity, the customs and the traditions that you hold dear. But it can also create a kind of wall between yourself and someone else who may not know or understand that we really all always have something Mm -hmm. in common. But I'm digressing. (laughs) (laughs) So now in our scenario, our country is swiftly moving into the 20th century and the collective desire to give shape and substance to the quality of life in America gives rise to a progressive era, which spans from 1900 to 1929. And here comes the effort to make companies act responsibly to their workers by providing improved work conditions, including distinct work hours and no child labor, (laughs) or to stop corruption and grift in city politics by allowing women the right to vote and just generally creating better living conditions for those unable to escape tenements for the suburbs. And the settlement movement is part of this mission. What I didn't realize was that Jane Addams, famed reformer, sociologist, philosopher, and recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in 1931, brought the concept of settlement houses to the United States after her travels in Europe. To explain it succinctly, if I can, (laughs) if not simply, Settlement houses were intended to answer the problem of impoverished people living in crowded, disease-ridden tenements. The idea was that middle-class settlement workers would volunteer to live in a settlement house in order to share knowledge and culture with those less fortunate. Besides being cleaner and safer places to live, these settlement houses also provided daycare, healthcare services, as well as language and domestic arts classes. Mm -hmm. The settlement movement spread quickly. There were reported 74 houses in 1897, and by 1911, there were 413 in 32 states. And they've continued in some modified forms all the way through the 1990s, mm-hmm. sometimes following a more religion-based model. Please permit me to wax a little philosophical here. Oh, please wax away. Oh, so much waxing is about to happen. So I've been doing a very slow read on Food is Culture by Massimo Montanari, in which he makes this point. Food and its processes that transform it from, say, wheat to bread, and then bread to sandwich, and then sandwich to lunch, that entire process is all cultural. Mm. The way of building a fire leads us to cooking raw foods, which leads us to creating a place to cook called a kitchen then also gives rise to the development of a set of dishes and a ritual way of eating them. And those rituals become part of the way we delineate Mm -hmm. what is and is not a civilization. Now, the settlement houses were not intended to be a place where family moved in as a Hungarian Jew, for example, and emerged as a wasp, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. 
But the prevailing thought embedded in this progressive movement of the time was that by shifting not just your habits, but your whole framework of being towards the culture in which you are immersed can help you to A, be part of that culture, but also B, continue to build and Mm -hmm. define the culture itself. A little bit of a chicken and egg situation, right? And to use the melting pot analogy, you give a little bit of yourself into the communal stew, but you gain a little bit as well. Yeah. Now, I'm not prepared to debate the efficacy of the, quote, scientific philanthropy framework of the progressive movement that tended to promote a certain set of values as a way to exemplify a good life. But we are going to talk about the actual quote that we're going to talk about, The Way to a Man's Heart which is more broadly known as the Settlement Cookbook, and my experiences with it. So as you noted in our last episode, the Settlement Cookbook, as compiled by Elizabeth or Lizzie Blackhander, was first published in 1901, and it is a fully realized cookbook in that it contains not only hundreds of recipes, but also lessons on cooking techniques, serving procedures, nutrition, and the other ways and means of domestic life all in a way that is meant to teach and inspire its students to approach a more American type of life without stripping away the Mm -hmm. important traditions of the culture from which they came. Now, this book specifically originates from the Settlement House of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which housed many recent European immigrants, including large populations of Jewish families. And the dishes produced from these recipes in this collection will be familiar Jewish fare, but they're also modernized for American ingredients and cooking techniques, therefore bridging a divide between assimilation and cultural preservation. For example, not all foods and dishes referenced in the settlement cookbook are kosher, but there is enough still included for anyone to make and serve a respectable Passover dinner. I think that that was one of the things that I found really interesting when I first picked up this book. I was like, wait a minute. This is supposed to be, wait, what? We have Passover, but we've also got Easter dishes. <laughs> but to your point, yeah. it, it was to try to bridge that divide between the assimilation and their cultural preservation. And it's so evident when you look at these recipes. Mm-hmm. And in our last episode, Leigh, you also mentioned its subtitle, or it's mm-hmm. actually its original title, The Way to a Man's Heart, which evokes that old adage that food can and does inspire love and loyalty. And I can say with a chuckle that I have certainly found this to be true in my life. Again, please bear with me here. Now, my edition of this cookbook is a facsimile of the 1903 version of the cookbook. And so many of the recipes and techniques reflect how food was sourced and prepared at that moment in time. Some reflect a changing approach to recipe writing and have some specific cup, half cup, teaspoon, tablespoon measurements. But most do not. and do reflect the book's true origins as documentation of Lizzie's cooking classes that she offered at the Milwaukee House. Of course, this reminded me of my efforts to decipher the recipes in the Women's Suffrage Cookbook of 1887, and I started to feel a large amount of anxiety about being able to pull together a coherent meal out of this cookbook. Uh, This confusion must be, I thought, how young immigrant women may have felt before taking one of Lizzie's cooking classes. 
how am I going to put together a dinner on the table that, you know, may appeal to a suitor or may feed my young family? You know, what, how do I get all of this together? And, and how do I even prepare all these different things? So I was getting myself a little wrapped up a little overwhelmed and I decided to approach recipe selection in a way that I almost never do. And I literally handed the book to my husband and told him to pick something. And with the comment, when he handed it back that, oh, we haven't had something like this for a while, he chose steak and casserole. Now, before we get to the elephant in the kitchen, I have to talk for a second about how this exchange relates to what I'm trying to say about food and culture. Yeah, we pretty much never eat casseroles at home, ever. And since I'm the primary chef in our house, I do the bulk of the planning and the execution of food we eat. So we tend towards the food with which I'm familiar and I'm comfortable cooking. I mean, it makes mm -hmm. sense, right? Right. But here's the thing that I started thinking about. The meals that I ate with my family our repeated ritual of what, how, where, and when we eat, that is what makes up my idea of what it is to eat. And that largely does not include casserole as a dish. My family culture included meals chiefly composed of separate components. Like we had a protein and a carb and a lot of veggies, each cooked and served kind of as a distinct element. Right. So when you ask me to think about a plate of food in my head, that's what I see. Right. I don't see a casserole. <laughs> but I'm remembering that when I lived in the Midwest, my cooking did shift away from mm -hmm. that kind of food pyramid plate, mm -hmm. if you will, to more closely match up or reflect the dominant food culture of things that were served at that time and then in that place, casseroles, or large dishes of assembled ingredients meant to be served and eaten communally. I mean, dips, all the dips. I mean, so many dips, <laughs> the artichoke spinach dip and like seven layer bean dip. I felt like everything was meant to be eaten on chips. It was a really interesting experience, yeah. even in my own country, right? Right. Now that I've returned to the West Coast, and furthermore, I live in an area deeply influenced by Asian cuisines in which a single or few ingredients are meant to be featured in a meal. And I'm thinking kind of what uh, some of the stuff that we learned from how to cook and eat in Chinese. My cooking has returned back to something more akin to that food mm -hmm. pyramid plate style. Again, we just don't need a lot of casseroles in my house. And the funny thing is, is I am so glad that we did that episode on casseroles because I would have been a little confused with the recipe structure if I didn't know that steak and casserole, in this case, referred to cooking in a casserole dish mm -hmm. and right. not actually preparing a casserole, which is what Hector thought we'd be having. Because casserole means casserole, right? <laughs> yeah. Poor guy. He really thought he was going to get a casserole out of me. And he didn't. He didn't. But did he? Hang in there. <laughs> The entirety of the steak and casserole recipe is as follows, quote, quote, broil a thick steak a few minutes, then put into a casserole. Add one carrot, one onion, one parsley sprig, one bay leaf, one half turnip, hmm. one teaspoon catsup, six mushrooms, one wine glass Madeira wine. Let cook slowly until vegetables are tender, end quote. And at first, the lack of specifics completely threw me. And I tried to just trust Lizzie and trust the process. Imagine there was a young wife wanting to make a meal that reflected the love and respect for my partner. 
But then I Googled to get an approximate idea of cooking times and temperatures. I couldn't, I just couldn't let it. Am I supposed to cook it on the stovetop? Am I supposed to cook it in the oven? How long? At what temperature? Mm. I didn't want to ruin the meal. The anxiety got the better of me. And so I kind of ended up taking a pot roast approach. The resulting dish was delicious. Not apparently not quite as Michelin star worthy <laughs> as my chicken paprikash efforts from How America Eats, where he was like, I'm giving you a Michelin star for this one. But, you know, it was delicious. Not only was the steak and casserole a tasty dish that felt substantial and belly warming, but the act of making it as well, especially by request, right. did feel like I was nourishing my spouse, not only with food, but with love as well. And he was really happy to eat this dish. Mm. And I felt that with this dish, I was building that bridge between the past with Lizzie and the present that I have mm -hmm. now. Even though I couldn't follow her directions exactly, she wasn't trying to do that. She was just trying to offer a bit of guidance and a bit of advice on how to compose a dish that would be delicious. I did get to have the fun experience, though, of there were no turnips in my store because Technically, turnips are more of a fall vegetable. And even though we're heading in that direction, we're right. not there yet. Yep. And here's a major change that then Lizzie would have been experiencing in 1903. Mm. Groceries and green grocers carrying different products. Right. My store has to carry what is going to sell for my neighborhood. Yeah. And frankly, we may not be big turnip eaters over here. By contrast, I can easily find... Squash, I can find all the butternut mm -hmm. and spaghetti squash I want always and forever, but turnips were not available. What was available were small rutabagas. And so in the store, I was, mm -hmm. I was, and I suspected, I thought I had remembered that you can substitute rutabagas. And of course you can, but I've never in my life cooked one. So I, I got to peel and dice and eat rutabaga which is kind of awesome but i bought more than i needed because i actually wasn't entirely sure what a half a turnip right really was supposed to be so i bought four rutabaga but then i ended up using two because i didn't want to overwhelm the dish with rutabaga i did my best to follow the intent of the recipe i couldn't help monkeying with it a little bit i think that's probably pretty common for people who like to cook and who like to eat mm-hmm so what I did differently was, um, one of the things I did differently, I didn't even bother with a parsley sprig because I don't like parsley enough to buy a whole bunch of parsley in order to use one sprig worth. Mm. So based on the how to cook and eat in Chinese, back to that one again, is I tried to do the rolling cuts on the carrots that is recommended in how to cook and eat Chinese. So rather than doing a uniform, just bop, 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 chop on my carrot, Every time I cut, I rolled the carrot on the, the board and I cut in a different direction. This gives you asymmetrical cuts. You kind of get varying sizes, but the idea is like you can actually, you get more flavor out of your component that you're cutting that way. I bought chuck roast as my steak because I knew I was going to cook for a while. So I wanted a cut of beef that could withstand that. I casserole roasted it put it in a casserole, put a lid on it, and I did bake it for about two hours. Mm -hmm. And I served it with a little bit of a starch because I felt like Ooh, yummy. we could or 
I just couldn't imagine it without that, but I didn't do potatoes. I did parsley and pasta, but not parsley. So yeah, in this way, you know, I was able to kind of build this bridge between the past and the present, between Jewish food and my own non-Jewish upbringing. And then again, this bridge between my family food culture and my husband's, we met in the middle on this one. And we didn't realize that going into it. You know, he, he thought he was getting a casserole, but he loved what I did cook. So I might have to find him, actually find him a casserole to make. But there are other casserole dishes in this book that I think are truly meant to deliver a casserole. This is the way civilizations are built, right? Right. <laughs> kind of funny to think of it that way. When you are defining who you are and you're helping people think about who they are and where they're going and there's intentionality in that, that is what makes, that was what makes civilizations. I love it. Just a humble little, humble little, not quite a pot roast. For more information about today's episode and to listen to others that talk about the culture of food, please check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat. And join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook to discuss your favorite moments from the episode. And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And after you've tried beef on casserole and you realize that it's not a casserole dish, if you could rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser or Spotify, we would be so, so, so super appreciative. These ratings really, really help food enthusiasts just like you join the As We Eat community. And we believe the more, the merrier. We also publish the As We Eat journal and Substack. We would be honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We are excited to be bringing you a new take on the journal with monthly features on deep dives into vintage recipes, discoveries, and the return of some of our favorite explorations into what's in their pantry and kitchen technologies. We have some new subscriber options for you to sample, and we're sure you'll find one perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com. You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our curiosity-driven project serving up how food connects, defines, and inspires by blending a bit of research with a dash of humor and if you couldn't tell, a whole heaping cupful of passion. Ba ba da da ba ba da ba ba da ba 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 ba.